How big is your table? In watching that, I just want to give an invitation. If there's anybody that doesn't have a home for Thanksgiving, you put your name on the back of the card, we're going to find you a home to have Thanksgiving meal. Nobody should have Thanksgiving meal alone. You agree? And if you'd like to offer an opportunity for somebody to be at your home, you can note that as well. I know for us, we have family around our table. Not everybody's going to be there this week. But I also know that there's going to be another friend of uh, one of our sons who she was sort of an orphan because she can't get back home for Thanksgiving. And so she's going to spend part of it with us. I remember when I was on the East Coast and I was in graduate school and uh, I couldn't get back home for Christmas. I lived in the servants' quarters of a larger, nice, really beautiful home that was seated right on uh, the Hudson River. And I was invited by that family to be a part of their Thanksgiving meal, which I deeply appreciated. But how large is your table? And does your table reflect the community life that you're involved in? Not just your family, but beyond your family, your church family, your family of people that God's calling you to be of encouragement to, or maybe somebody to reach. These are beautiful times for us to be able to extend ourselves in a ministry effort and an encouraging effort to other people. We've spent a couple weeks here on this subject of identity in Christ. And this morning, this whole subject of identity in Christ was for the purpose of leading us into a spirit of gratitude and thanksgiving and worship heading into this week because of what we have in Christ if we are a follower of Jesus. We talked last week and we worked our way through some verses in Ephesians that talked about the tremendous blessing that we have when we are in Christ. And those things are true today, and they should seed us in our thanksgiving to the Lord for this week. But on this subject of identity in Christ today, the Lord, I don't know, maybe it was things like watching a video like that that just prompted me to say, you know, there's something a little bit broader concerning our identity in Christ that we really need to be focused on as Christians and we need to be offering to those who are not believers yet. And that is our identity, not just in Christ, but our identity in the body of Christ. Because you see, they go hand in hand. They're one and the same. I have somebody who's going to help me with a little bit of an illustration today. Uh, uh, Mr. Levi, would you bring up that jacket? All right, I want you to model that jacket for everybody here. If you could put that on, I know it's a little bit warm for you. Uh, Levi's, uh, Melissa and I's youngest son, and uh, Levi, he uh, uh, went out with us last evening to be able to have dinner at somebody's house, and uh, that was a joy to be able, that's a unique way to put on a coat, son. Uh, we uh, <laughs> we uh, had uh, dinner out last night, and he comes in to get his dad, who's uh, in the study, and he says, Time to go, Dad. Time to go. Time to go. And when he walked in, he walked in with this letter jacket. I had forgot that he actually had this letter jacket. Uh, did you earn this letter jacket? Uh, yes, yeah, so he thinks he did, so that's fine with me then. But this letter jacket has some numbers on the side of it. You, turn it, you see the numbers there? 79. You know what happened in 1979? 
Your dad graduated from high school in 1979. What do you think? That's a few years ago now, right? And this was my letter jacket for sports. And just to brag a little bit, it was cross country, it was track and basketball. Basketball was the main thing. But a lot of my identity in high school had to do with being an athlete. Good or bad, I was an athlete and I earned a letter jacket. And I am glad that you can wear that letter jacket, Levi. But the identity I had in high school around sports did not carry for very long. I got cut from the basketball team on my college campus. And in hindsight, it was a blessing for multiple reasons, but so ended my identity as some athlete. And then I've done, like the rest of you, I took my position in a nice lazy boy chair to just watch people do athletics, right? Yeah. Thank you, son. You can have a seat. But uh, the <laughs> letter jacket there is from my high school, Southwood High School in Wabash, Indiana. And uh, we had a lot of great memories together as team. Some heartbreaks as well. I can name for you the starting five on my basketball team and sort of track a little bit maybe where they're at, where they're not. We were a team. And we bonded together and we tried to conquer challenges, taking down the people that won the sectional every year. And we came within five points of doing that. But the identity that we have is not just an identity as an individual, it's really also connected with a group of people. You are going to be having Thanksgiving meal this week with a primary identity of family. And maybe there's some guests that are around there. Nobody, you know, if somebody needs a meal, I can, but you identify with that family. And there's really as much as you would like to think, if they're blood family, blood family there is no way out of that family. Even if you don't show up ever, because they're your blood relatives, right? That's your family. And whether good or bad, you are marked by that family that you were born into and that family that you carry through for these years. So your identity isn't just an individual identity related to you, me, myself, and I. It's a corporate identity. But it's just not the identity of family or an identity of a ball team that you were on. It could be an identity related to your workplace right now. You have co-workers, again, good or bad, and you go there and you have to serve and you earn a living in the midst of that group week in and week out. Now, some of your people that you're connected with in modern day isn't through physical face-to-face -face presence. It may be through social media. It may be through some type of electronic connections and, and Zoom calls, whatever it may be. But you do not operate as an individual unto yourself. You operate in relationship and with community with others. And many a times that relationship and community with others defines your sense of self-worth on an ongoing basis. Have you ever been in a season of life where you've been truly, truly alone? Maybe you moved somewhere. Maybe some crisis happened. Maybe there was some estranged relationships going on and you were alone. 
Now that's all right for a little while. Sometimes you like your space. Sometimes you like your peace. But you were not born as a non-relational being. You were born in relationship with one another because God is in relationship. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. So God's very essence in the Trinity is community. And when he made you in his image and desired for you to be in a relationship with him, he made you with this wiring to be in community. But if you do not have the right kind of community in life, you can find yourself in some very dire and dark, difficult situations. So on this Thanksgiving Sunday, I want us to focus not just on your identity in Christ as an individual, but your identity in Christ as part of his community. And ask you, how much of your identity really comes by being in the body of Christ? I want to read for you a startling statistic, and this statistic, uh, we gave reference a few weeks ago to some statistics, and this one's sort of a little bit on the heels of that. It comes from Alan Roxburg, and um, wrote a book called Joining God, Remaking Church, Changing the World. And he says this, these statistics uh, have to do with different generations. Listen to them. If you were born between 1925 and 1945, Anybody here with that? All right. There's a 60% chance that you're in church today. If you were born between 1946 and 1964, any hands there? All right. There's a 40% chance that you're in church today. If you were born between 1965 and 1983, there's a few hands. a 20% chance that you're in church today. And if you were born after 1984, good to see some hands, there is less than a 10% chance that you are in church today. Isn't that a striking statistic? What's going on? Are we that bad in the church? Or is church seen as optional? I love Jesus, but I'm not so sure if church is that important for me in my life. And let's take the word church and not define it in terms of a building or a service. Church, biblically, means ecclesia, the called out ones. Church, by definition in Scripture, were those who were called out to be followers of Jesus. And so the church is the question mark to you. Are you involved with others who are Christ followers? You know, many of us this morning, we would acknowledge even out in the marketplace that we are Christians. Uh, You sort of identify Christians as a vague term. But there comes a moment when you need to start identifying not just as a Christian, because that's vanilla term, but as a Christ follower. You see, when you identify as a Christ follower, that's a little bit more of an aggressive step. And when you identify as a Christ follower, then are you identifying with other Christ followers, and are you living your life in engagement with other Christ followers, and are you finding your identity some in being a Christ follower with others? A couple other quotes here just to share with you on the heels of that statistic. 
from a couple other people. One is by Lyle Schaller. Lyle Schaller wrote so much on church stuff, especially when I was younger and those kinds of things. He wrote this 20 years ago. The normal, natural, and predictable response to discontinuity is denial. This stage of denial often endures for a generation and usually is accompanied by confusion, gloom, conflict, attempts to perpetuate yesterday, bewilderment, confrontations, pessimism, and sometimes even chaos, but rarely by support for creativity. He said that in regards to us as evangelical Christ followers, Christians, waking up to what's happening in our world. And he said that 20 years ago, that we can't live in denial. Those generational statistics, what's going to happen another two or three decades from now? Will people be gathering in a large group like this to worship the Lord and, and hear somebody stand up and sort of speak words, hopefully of encouragement, but maybe ex exhortation, to be able to gather for a, 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 a potluck meal together? Is, is that a destiny that's going to hold intact? And not just the gathering aspect, but people that really want to be Christ's followers and serve his purposes in the kingdom. What's the trajectory of the church? Is the church going to be not... I know the institutional aspects of what a lot of people are repealed from, but is the church biblically as a community, a body of Christ, going to be functioning very well in the decades ahead? Or are we living in ignorance to it? And some of my challenge today in presenting our identity, not only as our identity in Christ as an individual, but our identity in Christ as part of his body, is that we are on a trajectory here that's not very healthy. It's not good at all. I had the uh, privilege of officiating at a funeral service this week, someone I did not know. She passed away earlier in life than you would anticipate, and her two teenage boys were seated right down in front of me, and my heart went out to them. And um, when you step into some services of people that you do not know, you're uncertain as to, you know, what the background is, what the trajectory of it is. And I was thinking about these statistics in light of that, and I was thinking to myself, wow, this is why we do what we do. Giving the opportunity for teenagers, for young adults, for baby boomers, for people that are older than that, that, that everyone would have the opportunity to be a part of not only having a relationship <clears throat> with Jesus, but being able to be a part of the body of Jesus. I'll give you another quote by Reggie McNeil. He wrote a book called The Present Future, and he wrote this book 19, 20 years ago. I remember reading it. The current church culture in North America is on life support. It is living off the work, money, and energy of previous generations from a previous world order. The plug will be pulled either when the money runs out, 80% of money given to congregations comes from people aged 55 and older, or when the remaining three-fourths of, of a generation who are institutional loyalists die off for both. I read that phrase, institutional loyalist. Think about that. Is that you? 
Is that me? Is why I'm a part of church because I was raised in church and I have an appreciation for institution or that's my career, if you will? Is it, am I just an institutional loyalist? Or is there something inside of me that drives me to be connected with my brothers and my sisters who also are in Christ? And my identity is found in Christ, but also in the body of Christ. And so I long to be together in community. You see, it's not a priority many times when there's so many other pressing agendas in our life. But the fact that you got up and you came here this morning. But I trust it's not because you're just an institutional loyalist that's going to die off someday. I trust it's because you find a sense of worth, a sense of purpose, a sense of inspiration, and power and encouragement by being a part of a community of people. And then it's important to us, especially with the name Awakening, right? That we are a live, vibrant kind of community that really does love and to care and want to serve God's purpose. Like when you come this evening and you sit around tables, you're going to maybe connect with people you already know, but will, will you take an initiative to extend your family and maybe sit with someone that you don't know and find out their story or their background and build your community, build the body of Christ connections that you have. Or it's like, I just want to dip in and dip out and get the good food. I'm good. I'm going home. I'll try to find, watch the rest of the ball game, Sunday night football. Which, by the way, we'll just put on the big screen because we have a big screen now. So you have not have that excuse. I trust that you up your commitment on your identity journey by upping your commitment to being a part of the body of Christ at every turn. Rugged American individualism. You know that phrase? That comes from our culture, our history in America. People from the 13 colonies, let's go west. Go west, my son. Find your ground. You know, uh, stake your claim. It's embedded in American culture, individualism. But when you go to Scripture, Scripture, when it talks about identity and what it means to be in Christ, many times isn't referring to you as an individual at all. It's referring to you as a part of this community. I don't, I'm doing something different today, by the way. I chose not to have any slides today just to see if you would get lost. No, I, I really want to look at some different scriptures, and I always try to figure out how much scripture I put on a slide or not, and then it got late, and I said, just forget it. We're just going to go with it. I want you to turn to Ephesians. In Ephesians, we were there last week. We read through this passage in Ephesians from verses 3 through 14. And at the concluding part of 14, it then spills over into a prayer that the Apostle Paul is saying for the community there in Ephesus and many of the others around. And he says this in verse 15. For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all God's people, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. 
I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance and his holy people and his incomparable great power for us who believe. The power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is involved, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And then verse 22, and God placed all things under his feet and appointed him, Jesus, to be the head over everything for the church which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Just a beautiful articulation of reality there, summing it up that Jesus Christ, who we are a follower of, if you've chosen to do that, is the supreme head over the church, the body of Christ. I want you to Think back, if you've got your scriptures open there or your electronic devices, in the first part of that, the word you and your were mentioned a lot. Because we come out of a rugged American individualism culture, because we had the printing press that eventually ended up giving us copies of scripture in our own hands so we can study on our own, and many other, a plethora of other reasons... Our faith in our world has become more private than public, more private than communal. But that's not the way it was in the New Testament era. They did not have scripture for themselves to read. In fact, they would gather in groups and the word was spoken to them, whether it was the old Hebrew scriptures or a letter that maybe the Apostle Paul or somebody else wrote or one of the gospels that described the works and the activity of Jesus. They sat as a community and they heard the word spoken to them as a community. So if you're in a community and you're hearing the word spoken to you and the term you and your are placed in there, how are you going to interpret it? Would you interpret that as an individual? Well, you can. There's nothing wrong with that. But the majority of places that the words like you and your are used in Scripture, in the Greek, it's not singular. It's plural. And so when you read the Scripture and the you and the your, you need to read it in a community kind of hearing. So... When Jesus would say something to the effect of, you know, Jesus uh, exhorts you to love other people, then you would start whistling. How are we going to do that? How are we going to do that one another? It wouldn't be that individual context of, oh, yeah, how am I going to? Maybe, maybe I should invite somebody over to Thanksgiving meal this week. No, you would say as a community family, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? And so there has been a shift in our faith in this culture to an individualized identity in Christ rather than a corporate identity in the body of Christ. And that's unfortunate in many ways. I believe it's why there's a lot of loneliness in many regards. There's also 
the reality that there is a destiny that stands before us, and the destiny is Jesus is coming back for individuals? Well, yes, Carrie, he is. But the reality is Jesus is coming back for what? A bride. And the bride is the church, the body of Christ. And so if you're really narcissistic, you're going to have a hard time in heaven because it's not about me, myself, and I. It's about us. It's about us as a community. And sometimes it's a challenge in Satan. Like I said, these last couple of weeks, Satan attacks our identity in Christ and who we are because we reflect the image of God. And so he can't get at God, so he's going to get at his people and try to whisper in your ear, you're not good for anything, or you're a failure, or look at you. And so you define your identity based upon what you have or haven't done or what somebody else said to you or what you think to yourself and listen to the voice in your head. What... That's all a reality. He's attacking you as an individual and your identity in Christ. But you know what he is attacking more? The identity of the body of Christ. He can't stand the thought that he who was an archangel in heaven with all the other heavenly hosts and for whatever reason made these choices where he thought he should be worshipped and God kicked him out of heaven and a third of the angels with him and are fallen into this fallen world and there's dark angels and demonic spirits that work in his chaotic satanic kingdom. He can't comprehend this idea that God is redeeming for himself a people of his very own, eager to do what is good and he is coming together for the bride of Christ, for the people of Christ. And he's going to attack it. And he's going to try to take you and I down as it relates to us having a healthy, biblically functioning community. And he's going to try to marginalize the importance of church attendance in your life. Not because you need to check it off your list and feel good because you're an institutional holdout. But because your identity's there. We finished up Rooted Group last week. I made mention of that. This was an interesting rooted group. My rooted people that are here this morning will say, yes, you did tell us that. It was an eclectic group of people from different kinds of backgrounds, ages, social dynamics, and even languages. And when we started rooted, I'm like, well, how's this going to work? How's this going to work? Don't you like to be together with people like you? Like, like you? And God says no. Many times. He says Get to know people from other walks of life and other seasons of life and build affinity with them. Let the older teach the younger. Let the younger inspire the older, whatever it may be. And, and let's see what happens with this. And I was surprised. We come to the end of the Rudin, and Rudin sort of is an on-ramp into life group. And everybody that was there is like, well, what are we going to do now? Rudin's over. We, we sort of like this. We like one another. And so we're going to be thinking through how to do that. And I've had rudens before, and I'm trying to think through, okay, what happens in January? We're going to have a meal. We've got to meal tonight together, and then we'll have a meal next week at somebody's house and invited. But I'm like, okay, something happened. And that rooted experience, even though I was apprehensive, as if there could be kindred spirit. Why is there kindred spirit, whether in that group or your life group or in this room here today? Because we have something in common, and that is Jesus Christ, who is our head. And it doesn't matter what walk of life you come from, what's your background, what your interests are, your affinity, 
you have something in common with the person who's seated on the other side of the Thanksgiving potluck meal tonight. And that is Jesus. And because you have Jesus in common, there is a spirit of unity that you can build off of even though there is diversity. Scripture says that in the end times, there'll be people from every language, tribe, and nation, right? Part of us think, oh, that's sort of cool, but then have you been around other people that are different than you? You're like, oh, I'm just, hey, everybody over here that was a part of my team, or everybody over here that likes the Rams, you know, the Dodgers, what's just sort of... No. Your identity is in Christ. And you know what this world needs today? You hear a lot of talk, right? And rightfully so, in certain pockets, about, hey, there's prejudice in our world. Racism, right? It's, it's raised its head, but there's always this talk. And you're like, what are we going to do to get along with one another? And you hear conflict and tragedy every week in the news. What's the answer to the brokenness in our community and in our nation? Jesus. Because when you realize that in Christ, as an individual, your sins have been forgiven, that mercy has been granted to you, not based upon who you are or what you've done, but just because God loves you. When you receive his mercy and his grace and you enter into that relationship, you start to understand that everyone else is the same in God's eyes as well, and you should be treating them also that way. I want to read for you a story. This story is out of the book of Acts. It's actually right in line where we as men have uh, been walking through the book of Acts on Saturday morning. And men, if you're here, we're not meeting this Saturday because it's Thanksgiving, but we are meeting the next Saturday, and we're going to pick up on the other side of this story because this story is right in line. you got your scriptures, turn with me to Acts chapter 10. Acts chapter 10. This is a pivotal moment. In Acts chapter 8, it was all this is pivotal when there was this turning from it just being about the Jews and Jesus being a Jewish Messiah to Jesus being a Savior for all the world. And so Stephen was stoned, the church was dispersed at that time, and they went into different parts of the world, which was God's doing, because he had told them when he left, Jesus did, that you'll be my witnesses in Judea, and in, in Jerusalem, and Judea, and Samaria, right, and to the ends of the earth. He wanted them to go. And so when persecution hit in Acts 8, then they started to scatter. And then in the next chapter, the apostle Paul, who was Saul, and God picked him to be his, the missionary to the Gentiles. The word Gentile is just anybody who's not a Jew. And then you come in to Acts 10, and you have the story of Peter and Cornelius. Listen to this, if you don't have it before you. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius. Now, this is just north of modern-day Tel Aviv. Uh, modern-day Tel Aviv is actually old Joppa, and uh, just north of that was Caesarea along uh, the sea. There was a man named Cornelius. Now, Cornelius was a centurion, which means he oversaw a hundred soldiers, and he was not Jewish. He was a Gentile. In what was known as the Italian Regiment, he and all of his family were devout and God-fearing. He gave generously to those in need and prayed, God, prayed to God regularly. One day, it's interesting, isn't it? Here he was a Gentile, and those are pretty affirming words. 
that he feared God and he prayed to him continuously. One day in verse 3, at about 3 in the afternoon, he had a vision. He distinctly saw an angel of God who came to him and said, Cornelius, Cornelius. Cornelius stared at him in fear. What is it, Lord? He asked. The angel answered, Your prayers and gifts to the poor have come up as a memorial offering before God. That's something to remember. God, you think nobody looks at your offering? God does. Now send men to Joppa to bring back a man named Simon, who is called Peter. He is staying with Simon the Tanner, whose house is by the sea. You know, they had no real means of, hey, give him a phone call or, hey, text him. You know, this is where you can Google map him at. No, he's just, hey, he's Peter, Simon, original name. He's staying with Simon the Tanner by the ocean. You'll find him. Hey, hey. I'm sorry. I just like to place myself in stories. And that's what I do. When the angel, uh, I'm sorry, where was I now? Oh, sorry. Seven, thank you. See, that's why I don't do slides today. So, all right. Seven, when the angel who spoke to him had gone, Cornelius called two of his servants and a devout soldier who was one of his attendants. I mean, the guy, you know, was decked out, right? He had personnel. He told them everything that had happened and sent them to Joppa. About noon, that, that's, that's scene one for those of you who are into scenes, all right? Now, this is scene two. So, that was Cornelius. This is scene two. At about noon the following day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the roof to pray. He became hungry and wanted something to eat. And while the meal was being prepared, he fell into a trance. He saw heaven opened and something like a large sheet being let down to earth by its four corners. So the rooftops were a good place to go to pray. There was an outside stairwell up on these flat roofs, and it was probably close by the sea there, right? As it said, so it was cooler. A good place to pray. He, I don't know who he told he was hungry, but he was hungry. But he goes up to pray, and in this prayer time, he falls in some, some type of a trance. And in this vision or dream, he sees this huge sheet coming down from heaven with four corners. It contained all kinds of four-footed animals, as well as reptiles and birds. Then a voice told him, Get up, Peter, kill and eat. Verse 14. Surely not, Lord, Peter replied. I have never eaten anything impure or unclean. So that was the custom of the day. He wasn't just being a vegan because he wanted to be a vegan. He was according to certain kind of dietary rites for his faith, the Jewish faith. He said, I would never eat anything that's unclean, right? Pork in particular was like not a cool thing to do, right? And so all these customs, rituals and laws that were a part of his life, I've kept them all. Why would I do this? Nothing wrong with being a vegan, but God himself said, kill and eat. Come tonight for Thanksgiving potluck. Keep going, Carrie. All right. Surely not, Lord, Peter replied. I have never eaten anything impure or unclean. The voice spoke to him a second time. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. This happened three times. The sheet coming down, the animals. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. Three times and immediately the sheet was taken back into heaven. 
Scene number three. While Peter was wondering about the meaning of the vision, the men sent by Cornelius found out where Simon's house was and stopped at the gate. They called out asking if Simon, who was known as Peter, was staying there. While Peter was still thinking about the vision, because he was caught up and he was trying to, he scratched his head, what, what in the world does this mean, God? <laughs> the Spirit said to him, isn't it great when you see in Scripture, especially in more modern times, this is post-Jesus, right? Jesus sent to heaven, he said, it's of your value, I'm going to send the Spirit back to you and you'll be possessed by the Holy Spirit and it's to your advantage that I go away because I, I, I need to be your helper and your advocate and your guide through the Spirit, that you read a passage like this, and it's like, oh yeah, that's the Scripture, that's what it's supposed to say. But friends, this is true of us today. While Peter was wondering about the meaning of the vision, the men sent, found out where he was, they called out, he was still thinking about the vision, and the Spirit said to him, Spirit been speaking to any of you recently? God wants to speak to you, and His Spirit dwells within you, and His voice is closer than you think. And I believe one of the things He wants to speak to you about is what He was going to speak to Peter about in this story. And so, the Spirit said to him, Simon, three men are looking for you. So get up and go downstairs. Do not hesitate to go with them, for I have sent them. Peter went down and said to the men, I'm the one you're looking for. Why have you come? The men replied, We have come from Cornelius the centurion. He is the righteous and God-fearing man who is respected by all Jewish people. A holy angel told him to ask you to come to his house so that he could hear what you have to say. Then Peter invited the men into the house to be his guest. Now for... A Jew to invite Gentiles, and that wasn't any big deal, but he had just been invited by a Gentile to go into their house as a Jew. So scene number four. Next verse. Well, in the middle of verse 23. The next day, Peter started out with them, and some of the believers from Joppa went along. Went as a community, right? The following day, he arrived in Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. As Peter entered the house, Cornelius um, uh, met him and fell at his feet in reverence. But Peter made him get up, get up, man, stand up. He said, I am only a man myself. Don't be worshiping me. While talking with him, Peter went inside and found a large gathering of people. He said to them, group of people, you are well aware that it is against our law for a Jew to associate or visit a Gentile. But God has shown me that I should not call anyone impure or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without raising any objection. May I ask why you sent for me? Cornelius answered, three days ago I was in my house praying, and he goes into this story, and I won't finish out that story. You can finish it out on your own. But what God does is he opens up the gospel of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles as well as the Jews. Abram was called out of the Ur of the Chaldees 4,000 years ago or so and before Christ in this, and he ended up becoming the father of a nation, the Jewish people. In Genesis 12, he was spoken to, and he says, 
by God and says, I'm going to bless you to be a blessing to all nations. And God raised up the Jewish people so that they could be exemplary of God's goodness and his riches. And so the Old Testament is filled with the story of the Jewish people. Jesus came as a Jew to his own, but those who are his own did not receive him. But he came not just for his own, he came for all people. And so after his life, his death, his resurrection, he had to recorrect the people's thinking that they weren't just this little niche group, this little team of people called Jews and nobody else can be a part of our party. No, no, no. I came for all people, that all people would be saved. And so he scatters the church following Stephen's death. He raises up Paul to be a missionary. And then he comes to Peter, who's the rock, the foundation of the church, based upon the rock of Christ, the Messiah of Christ. And he tells Peter, you dare not call something impure that I call clean. And he had to step away from prejudice. He had to step away from his racist heart, maybe in many ways, or thinking that he was a part of some elite cub. And he spoke to the people in that house that day. He gave them the gospel. Many were saved. Many were baptized. They were filled with the Spirit of God. And so the book of Acts continues on about the gospel of Jesus Christ going to all people because what God is doing is calling out a people of his very own, eager to do what is good. And God is coming to redeem that people. And in this day, the people, us who are followers of Jesus, we need to be hanging together, not just for social things, but to be able to do the work of the kingdom, do the work of the purpose of the Holy Spirit in every day and disposition of life. Are you connected to other people? Is your identity in the body of Christ? Or are you trying to build your own identity by your career or, or maybe your sense of just family? i got a great family to myself. I'm, but are you building into the broader identity of the body of Christ? And are we as an evangelical church in this world offering that to the next generation as a sign of beauty in the midst of all the conflict and the adversity? We've got a job to do. We got to rethink some things, just like Peter did. Oh, we may not have prejudice and racism in our heart, but we're sort of clicky. We like being with our own. But we don't like stepping outside of our comfort zone. And when I saw that video you guys saw earlier that was an enactment of inviting people over for Thanksgiving, I thought, Lord, that's the church. That's the church people from every language, tribe, and nation. When we're exhorted in Colossians 3 that we should not find our identity in ourselves, we are told to set our hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things, for you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. Therefore put to death, and it lists all kinds of things to put to death. And it says, do not lie to each other since you have taken off the old self and put on the new self. It actually is the word, the old man and the new man. It's not really referring so much to your personal self that you need to take off and put on the new self in Jesus, identity in Christ. But for us as mankind to take off the old self and the way we think and to put on the new self. Because here it says there in Colossians 3, there is neither Gentile or Jew circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. Therefore, clothe yourself with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. 
Bear with one another and forgive whatever grievances you have one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you and over all these virtues put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Wow! Is that a great vision? It can only happen in community. Are you devoted to community? Have you made the decision to come out of the grandstands and identify as a Christ follower and then identify with his body? Invite the worship team to come up. I want to just give a simple encouragement and exhortation to us as the body of Christ. There's many ways that you can take an initiative to step further and deeper into being a part of the body of Christ. Yeah, one's showing up and giving your presence to encourage one another. I often say there's the meeting before the meeting, there's the meeting, and there's the meeting after the meeting. The meeting before the meeting, we had a nice prayer time here today and some people connecting afterwards. This is the meeting, and then after this meeting, there's going to be the meeting after the meeting. And so the children's choir is going to be practicing up here, and some of us are going to be hanging out in the lobby, connecting with another. This is community that happens, so it's important to show up, and maybe your words, the words that encourage somebody that day, and not anything that I said. So be involved. Make it a priority to be here, if you will. And, and then right before you is this long, skinny card to serve, to give your life to serve, to be involved in helping other people, one of the things we prayed about in prayer meeting this morning was children's ministry and with Oliver and Amy transitioning our need to see leadership raised in our children's ministry because that's a community of kids that we need to be serving. Oh, the offering thing, that's, that's given to God's purposes. You don't give to me, you really give to this church. You're giving to God. On the back of that Connect card, there's a place to to mark a couple things, if you've never come to know Jesus and you want to know Jesus and become in Christ and be a part of his body, then, then give acknowledgement that you want to be saved or you're committing your life to Christ this morning. But, but then that whole thing of a life group, I know life groups sort of take a back seat a little bit during the holidays. We hang out and then we'll revamp in the second week or so of January. Do you have a commitment to be a part of a community? Maybe people that aren't even like you to learn to love and to care and to do ministry together. It's a place to mark to be baptized. We're going to have a baptism in January. Have you ever been baptized? You know what baptism was? It was the outer sign of an inner commitment of a Christ follower. One who was in Christ, identified with being a part of the body of Christ in a public setting. If you've never been baptized, say, I have interest in being baptized. That service will, will have some time there in January. There's initiatives you can take but maybe it's not with this church. Maybe it's just loving on somebody that hasn't received love in a long time. Maybe it's in your family. Maybe it's a spouse. And they need to hear your words, see your actions. Maybe it's a child. Maybe it's a neighbor. Maybe it's extended family. And this week, Thanksgiving, be a part of the body of Christ and extend the love of Christ. Because as my mom used to say, the ground's level at the foot of the cross. We all come as sinners. No matter our skin color, our background, our socioeconomic status, in Christ, our identity is found through Jesus. Let's thank Jesus this morning. Ushers, you can play, take your places to receive the Lord's tithes and offerings and your connect cards. But let's worship Him as we close. And If you want to come pray, you can come pray here. There'll be somebody to pray with you over here in the prayer area to your right if you have a prayer request or just want to bear your soul on something.
But if that spirit has spoken to you today, then lean in and obey. Give thanks to the Lord our God. Give thanks to the Holy One. Give thanks because He's given Jesus Christ, His Son. Why don't we all stand and sing this together? Give thanks to the Lord our God. Give thanks to the Holy One. Give thanks because He's given Jesus Christ, His Son. And now let the weak say, I am strong. Let the poor say, I am rich. Because of what the Lord has done for us. One more time, give thanks. Give thanks to the Lord our God. Give thanks to the Holy One. Give thanks because He's given Jesus Christ His Son. I am strong. Let the poor say I am rich because of what the Lord has done for us. And now let the weak say I am strong. Let the poor say I am rich because of what the Lord has done for us. Give thanks. Our Lord Jesus Christ, we give you thanks with grateful hearts for all that you've done. May we go forth this week of thanksgiving indeed with hearts lifted to you in praise for not just what you've done, but for who you are. And that we are included in your body and that we have a destiny that's defined for us that gives us purpose even this week. May your blessing cover each and every family and individual here. Lord, for the gatherings around the tables that would transpire, and I know some are tables that have people that are in and out as it relates to belief in you. For people that have never come to follow you, Lord, may you bless conversations and may you be glorified and lifted up in this week of Thanksgiving. Bring us back tonight, Lord, for a beautiful time of community together as a family as we worship you. In your name, God's people said, amen. We'll see you at 530.